Gordon Ramsay is the most popular thing on Twitch right now, but has gotten the world's biggest streaming personalities arguing about the legality of the latest streaming meta. All right, everyone starts watching MasterChef, but guys, why aren't you watching anything else? Well, I don't want to take that risk because people are too scared to do that. They don't want to risk their livelihood. Okay, it's over. MasterChef is over. MasterChef as a meta is completely over. That's it, it's done. So are we headed for another DMCA catastrophe? Welcome back to Social Media and Ourselves. Today, we're going to be taking a peek at Twitch.tv, an overwhelmingly popular streaming platform which has become subject to a number of metas. We'll talk about what those are, as well as how they might be harmful to today's creators. Twitch.tv is a live streaming platform on which users can broadcast themselves playing video games, making art, creating music, just chatting with their viewers, or whatever they please. Since its inception, Twitch has had to be really careful when it comes to copyright law. Live streaming music that isn't correctly licensed could lead to creators landing in hot water. Even as far back as 2015, it became common knowledge that streamers might get in trouble if they live streamed themselves using copyrighted music in the background. This led to a number of tools being created, including a royalty-free playlist created by Twitch itself, as well as similar playlists created by fans and other users. For many years, the music problem lay dormant in Twitch's background. But in the summer of 2020, a large number of unexpected copyright strikes came down on Twitch's creators. These were based on the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA for short. Twitch creators have become very familiar with this act, so much so that the term DMCA is basically slang on the platform. That, along with TOS, standing for Terms of Service, are two terms that are thrown around quite often if a streamer is discussing what may and may not be allowed on the platform. These DMCA strikes blindsided a lot of creators because they had no access to the VODs, or saved streams, that were being flagged for using copyrighted music. Often these creators had no way of editing these clips or choosing which ones showed up on their channel. Across the board, creators had thousands and thousands of VODs deleted. What's worse is that most of these VODs that were deleted were from at least a year prior to the date of deletion, a huge sucker punch to all of the creators being hit with DMCA strikes. The question arose, how much was Twitch actually monitoring any copyright infringement on their platform? Were they doing anything to control or mitigate it? And whose fault was it if it started to slip through the cracks? Twitch staff apologized later for not adding an option to the platform that allowed users to easily see which clips might get them flagged and edit them, take the sound out of them, or just take them down entirely. Though this is not the only problem Twitch has had with copyright, it was the last big one that got a lot of attention, so much so that the whole platform and its fans were shaken up by the developments. Now, what we're going to be talking about today is a new Twitch meta. Meta, like how the term is often used in a gaming context, refers to a dominant strategy or popular way of playing or using something. In our case, Twitch metas often refer to what a majority of large creators are doing at the time in order to set a trend. These metas come and go quite quickly, which is why so much new content comes out of the platform every day. With so many live streamers and content creators on the same platform, Metas are bound to flourish quickly, gaining a lot of popularity and increasing publicity for many creators. Today's topic is the Reaction Meta, also known as the MasterChef Meta for its inclusion of the popular show starring Gordon Ramsay. 
This recent phenomenon involves a lot of large creators streaming themselves watching old episodes of MasterChef or other shows like Avatar The Last Airbender, Death Note, Hunter x Hunter, and others. What's notable about this meta is how it's gotten so many large, popular household names and streaming in trouble so quickly. Hasanabi, Pokimane, and Disguised Toast are a few names that have gotten in trouble just for watching television shows live on stream. Generally, in these cases, the streamers were watching the show for about a day or two before they got hit with a ban from the platform. Twitch informed them that they would be suspended for at least two days, and then be able to resume streaming. Now, this punishment doesn't seem like much, especially counting in the fact that these streamers often gained more new viewers from the television shows they were watching. People flocked to these streams to see their favorite creators reacting to their favorite television shows, as well as to get access to old episodes of these shows that they may not already have. It's a fun time, and it feels very interactive, because the streamers are often talking to the chat as if they were there in the room with them. Since a two-day ban doesn't seem like much to pay for a good time and a lot of new viewers, there's been a big discussion about the effects of this meta. Firstly, since these creators are getting actual DMCA strikes on their streams, it brings the Digital Millennium Copyright Act back into the conversation, where many Twitch creators don't want it around. DMCA often feels like the enemy to these Twitch streamers, and they're often trying to avoid any strikes if possible. With the popularity of these streams, many creators started to worry that the new attention being given to Twitch by copyright holders could start to get more people in trouble, as well as sink the platform as a whole for being a hub for copyright infringement. Needless to say, the waters surrounding copyright and Twitch are very murky. And as of the airing of this episode, the MasterChef meta has started to die down a bit. No large creators, such as those that I named before, were hit with much more than a two-day ban, and no punishment was doled out to the Twitch community as a whole. In fact, one mega-popular streamer named XQC, who on most nights gets upward of 80,000 concurrent viewers, was never struck with any punishment for watching MasterChef, and he may have been the most prevalent participant in the MasterChef meta of them all, with more than double, at the very least, the viewer count that Hasanabi, Pokimane, or Disguised Toast would get on an average day. XQC even alluded to the fact that he may be working with MasterChef itself to create some new content in the future. Now, why the most popular streamer during the MasterChef meta didn't get any punishment, while a couple of slightly smaller creators did, is what we're going to be talking about with my guest today, Dr. Diana Daly of the University of Arizona. We're going to be talking about why some creators may be stricken and others might not, as well as why Twitch copyright enforcement works the way it does, why companies may not be enforcing their copyright as strictly as they should be, and why creators may make the career moves they do in light of all of this. We'll start by hearing what Dr. Daly had to say after I described the situation with the first DMCA crisis, in which automated takedowns had Twitch and the music industry at odds. That's so interesting because it does really seem to be the first thing that comes down on users in these situations. So often is this really broad hammer of an algorithm or, you know, I, I like to think of it as robots. I mean, with YouTube, fair use was really similarly just completely disregarded or various kinds of nuances and why people are using things um, and how they're using them in ways that could actually be protected by law are just struck down because there are these blunt instruments that that platforms begin with. And so it's interesting that they ended up apologizing for that and acknowledging that 
I then brought up what Nim, another popular creator on Twitch, had to say on the topic. On one of his streams, he compared the reaction meta to the whole working platform of Twitch itself. He referred to the fact that many streamers play video games casually and stream themselves having fun with chat or with their friends, much like what an ordinary individual would do in their free time. He then compared this to people watching a television show with a streamer almost as if they were both in the same room, just like what they might do in their free time. To him, it was all the same, which begs the question of... Is it creative, uh, you mean? <laughs> is, it, is it creative, yeah. Is it creative yeah. or is it just someone doing what you would be doing in your own free time and them streaming it? That is an interesting distinction in the letter of the law, right? But I think one mm -hmm. of the problems here is, as usual and as is kind of inevitable when it comes to culture and especially online culture, the law is out of step with the public practice, um, you know? So mm -hmm. the Twitch situation today, it's really all about what's called participatory culture, you know, um, and it's also about the idea that as we live more and more of our lives online, more of what we do is going to be passive activity. And so that passive activity, nonetheless, you're playing a role if you're a streamer in being a tastemaker, right? in uh, kind of showing people that you appreciate this so they might as well. And this is something that in general social media platforms has known is a way to direct people to content for a long time. So is it creative? Uh, you know, I think that that question is important, um, but I don't know that it's going to be easy to answer. And I also don't know that that's really the only question that I have in my mind. Is it valuable? Um, you know, this is a capitalist system. And is it valuable? Does it actually provide value for them? Well, if you're looking at precedent in history and how online cultures have, um, you know, what's happened when online cultures have interacted with content and been cracked down on by copyright, um, the precedent says that these corporations have to give in. In general, my thought is that it's not going to be easy to say that these people just shouldn't do this anymore. And it's certainly not going to make it easier to say it if you say, well, this isn't creative activity, because it's obviously activity that people are finding valuable. Um, and it's activity that people are finding valuable. It's people whose interests are kind of their taste making. Once again, they are they're defining for for big publics of people what is good to do, what is worth doing, um, what is worth watching. And so in that sense, this is still, they're doing something that adds value, um, is, is my kind of personal perspective. And I think you could also look at the precedent of how these fan cultures, when companies have tried to sort of lock them down and say they're not allowed to reuse their content, um, they're not allowed to copy their content um, and present it to, you know, and, and share it with other people and put their little spins on it. Well, um, that ends up locking them out of this participatory culture, locking these, um, you know, platforms and or these, these larger content producers, right? Um, these corporations, I guess I'll, I'll say as a kind of shorthand, you know, MasterChef, for example, like MasterChef could actually get locked out of participatory culture if they lock down the content too much and don't let people bandy it back and forth and share it in various ways.
Yeah, it's a thing that the streamers themselves have talked about a number of times is what companies have to gain from being lenient with enforcing their copyright. Um, and I think what you just said is speaks well to that point, because if they are seen as coming down with an iron fist on culture that is popular, they could be locked out of benefiting further from publicity of their of their product, right? And so these companies are having what's essentially free advertising for their for their shows because what these streamers are watching are are very like 10 year old episodes of tv shows whereas new ones are still coming out and so these companies are having their their brand's name uh put out there to many many concurrent viewers a night uh for free almost uh and so it's it's that balance to strike between enforcing your copyright and doing what's within your right under this system to, to make maximum profit and to have all your content um, under your control and where you want it versus getting what is essentially free publicity and being seen as uh, someone who's participating in the popular thing right now, the popular uh, streaming meta as it is. Yeah. It, and the funny thing is, well, what you just said made me think of two things. One thing it made me think of is uh, in terms of the content that's been watched, you know, I've been following this all happening a little bit as well. And I noticed that the Avatar series, um, you know, which is not new, as as you said, uh, exactly. is something that was there. And I remember watching that with my kids, you know, and, and that was actually, you know, after a long day of working and coming home and, and having to feed dinner and everything. It's just this kind of way of relaxing and not having to think too much and, and, you know, showing your family something valuable. It's kind of a form of, you know, the robot babysitter is, is something that it is for parents. And what's so interesting for me um, is when I see that a Twitch streamer is doing that for their fans, I can't help but think about the labor that they are doing as streamers and how tiring that might be and how much of a break they might need. Um, you know, and again, that's because I, you know, in my role as a mother have experienced those same feelings related to the people that I have to take care of, but I don't have tens of thousands of them. I have, you know, just a couple and, and they've grown up, whereas there's this perpetually young kind of attention craving audience that's, that's looking to these streamers to keep them entertained. And I think they are possibly creating value for these platforms. And they're also doing something that a human really needs to do, which is take a break. But I know from what I've seen about how it works with Twitch streamers, that there's a real importance placed upon how long they stream, um, you know, that that's sort of considered the the most noble thing that they can do is to just keep streaming and, and, you know, to stream as much as possible to open up their lives as much as they possibly can. But some of that just by human nature is going to have to be passive. That's one thing that what you said made me think of. Another thing that you said, you mentioned balance. And balance, uh, it's interesting that you say that because copyright actually is, in its original intent, supposed to be all about balance. It's not just about protecting creators and copyright owners, um, a new kind of established or commercial creators. It's about balancing cultural use and cultural production. So its goal is for work to continue being created, both amateur and professional work. 
And even though these Twitch streamers are professionals, um, and in some cases it sounds like they are being given a little bit more of a hard time because they are professionals, like they make all this money, why do they need to do this? But they also have this way of kind of embodying the amateur, right? Like a Twitch streamer that comes off as too professional um, in at least classic terms is not really what people are interested in watching. They're interested in watching somebody who feels more like, you know, a, a friend and and with whom you can have one of those parasocial relationships. And so I think that this whole thing is playing out in a way that demonstrates that copyright is really supposed to be about this read-write culture. Um, it's supposed to be not just about locking down things that were already created. Um, and if you want, we can get into talking about the history of copyright and how that's actually played out historically in the last few centuries. But the balance is the number one thing that's supposed to be the letter of that law. And I'm not sure if it really is that anymore. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. Um, really quickly, I do have to ask, uh, on the topic of, I mean, you've made a great point about the streamer as, a, as an amateur and their behavior as a creator. I have to ask about where they're coming from in terms of making creative choices. So it seems, from their perspective, that most of them are afraid of, of, of copyright, and then copyright is sort of an, an enemy who is watching out for them to make a, a wrong move and will strike at any point. So as creators, they often have to weigh the balance between playing it safe and not breaking any rules, or sometimes uh, to create new content, and this is true too for the, the reaction meta, as it were, they sometimes have to maybe, you know, toe the line between fair use and infringement or, 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 you know, test their luck a little bit in order to make themselves stand out and try to create something new. But from what you just said, it sounds like they should have more options in terms of having room to create using what has already been created. Do you think, what sort of options do you think might that include? Because for now, the only options are really um, deleting, you know, any sort of video on demand that has music in it or using completely copyright free uh, playlists or tools that have been created by Twitch itself or by Twitch staff or by, you know, fans who are familiar with copyright law? Well, I mean, it sounds like Twitch, it's possible Twitch is working on things behind the scenes. I mean, we can look to YouTube, which was a sort of previous generation example, um, not really, you know, people, not human generation, but just previous um, trend generation uh, around this. And so what YouTube has done is it's not ideal by any means. Um, but what one thing YouTube has done related to possibilities for people to create is it's still considered, you know, illicit or illegal and presented that way in the platform. But they do end up with this one option where if the content creator, if, or if I guess what I should say is if the copyright holder, holder's you, uh, work is reproduced on the platform, YouTube does have a system where they let the copyright holder know. I'm not sure if they do this all the time, but I know this is at least some of the time. They let the copyright holder know about this use. Um, and then the copyright holder can make a decision on whether to just have it taken down, um, you know, this kind of upstart use of their work to have it taken down or to share revenue um, or maybe collect all the revenue from 
from this reuse. And so that is not an ideal system, but it is a system. I think that Twitch is probably, I mean, the fact that this is in the news um, and that this is some of their most prominent creators, and it seems to be a big conversation um, and a growing conversation, I think that Twitch is probably um, trying to find some kind of a system to deal with this. If you look at DMCA, what DMCA is is really about is trying to thwart any kind of connective technological practices that um, can systematically violate copyright. And the way a lot of these platforms deal with that is by putting systems in place to, you know, to to shut down or or to, you know, block things that are violations of copyright. But because of what we've been talking about relating to participatory culture, there's also an awareness that they have to come up with other options. So I wouldn't be surprised to find out that Twitch is trying to find other options. But if you're asking me what options they have, I I mean, they, they can use a different platform that comes up with better options first, <laughs> you know, Definitely. and and there will be competitors for Twitch. Um, I know that uh, in some ways, Twitch is ahead of the game, but there will be competitors anytime there's a situation where culture is in conflict with with platform law and and systems in this way. Yeah, yeah, no, a, a system it, it ties back to where we started, and Twitch was lacking in systems then, and it seems like they're lacking in systems that give creators options now. Uh, and so, uh, for everyone's sake, I almost uh, you know I'm hoping that competition does spring up where where options exist um but but talk to me let's go back to that history talk to me about how such a system and how dmca both came into existence with with the new millennia and how uh, you know digital culture um interacts with copyright so i'll start with copyright kind of just a super brief history of it um mm-hmm. Just noting that it has broadened to lock down more content, more and more content for many decades now. So Disney, uh, you know, one mega corporation who's really had been very, very closely tied with what happens with copyright. Um, Disney, I guess I should say first that Disney uh, got a lot of their material from the Brothers Grimm uh, and other kind of folklore, which have just been circulating through oral histories and in somewhat unfixed forms. But sometimes fixed forms, as which in in the case of the uh, Brothers Grimm, they took these stories, but now they want to make sure nobody can do to these stories that Disney has. Nobody can do to Disney what they did to these previous, uh, you know, <laughs> storytellers like the Brothers Grimm. Um, and they seem bent on going to court infinitely to make sure Mickey Mouse is never in the public domain. And so these types of lobbyists are making copyright more and more, um, you know, locking down of content. And that's an interesting phenomenon because the U.S. was at one time a new nation with very little shared culture. And early American citizens had no qualms at all about copying authors' work, other authors' work. The thing is, like, think about America then. Um, I mean, we're not that old now, but we have become a superpower, extraordinarily, you know, established with a lot of content, right? But a nation needs to work, needs like work to produce in order to produce more work. There's no such thing as just kind of creating culture from nothing. And so we were very happy to steal work back when we were a younger nation. And now more and more we are locking it down. And that's something to 
keep in mind when you're looking at copyright more through that broad historical lens. But the Digital Millennium Copyright Act is kind of, you know, a, a big center of what we're talking about now, right? And exactly, yeah. So it's something many people became aware of around Napster and other peer to peer sharing in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, and as someone who studies information sharing, mostly I would describe DMCA as an attempt to slow down connective technologies in the interests of mass media and copyright holders. Um, but it has always been out of step with public practice ever since the internet became a thing because these practices, these public practices around the internet are just so connective. Um, so what I can remember with DMCA's impact on peer-to-peer -peer sharing around 2000 is first that young people got criminalized in a huge way. 60 million people were peer-to-peer -peer sharing, um, but young people tend to be early tech trend adopters. So young people in particular were criminalized in these huge numbers. And this is a bad thing, and it also didn't stop the public practice. And if you kind of flash forward to what possibilities we see now, you've got young people once again, you know, I mean, they're not being sent to sent to jail or or hopefully not, you know, it's not poor young people find a ton of money at this point, but it's important to keep those kinds of histories in the lens here when we think about this. It doesn't work anyway, because those punished are always a tiny fraction of those engaging in the criminalized behavior when it's, you know, a new public practice related to the Internet's connectivity. So DMCA actually only began having an impact on public practice when the most powerful platforms like YouTube um, added robots to automatically detect illegal copying and act on it. And it's an imperfect solution, of course, because it doesn't allow fair use covered under the law. Um, and it also has other problems. I know personally, as an instructor, as a content producer in the academic world, um, it's sometimes just inconvenient, but sometimes it's a real roadblock to progress. And an example I will give is in my courses on social media, we want to add transcriptions to make the media that we're kind of interacting with as I teach more accessible. Um, and that could help everyone, but we are not allowed to put those transcriptions up or share them because of DMCA. Wow. It's very tough to have a political system. It's, I mean, it's DMCA sense. Like it gets very political in that it's largely uh, being steered in the direction of the interests of larger corporations and uh, for lack of a better word, you know, the, the wealthy. Um, and it's sort of, you know, criminalizing and coming down on young people in popular culture, which is, as you said, a roadblock to progress. Um, and of course, you know, using robots to sort of facilitate that, that process is, is not going to help. I'm really curious what thoughts you have as, you know, a professional in this field, uh, as to how we could make the whole copyright process more human and, and more ethical, where we could avoid the use of robots or make a system in which, you know, algorithms are less prevalent and fair use can breathe and thrive again? That's a really good question. Um, and I think that one way to start is to consider how, how um, licensing alternatives like Creative Commons work. I think that Creative Commons is, uh, is a great, but, you know, still not real, not 
real prominent uh, way for people to think differently than than we do with copyright. And I think, though, that it's prominent enough that enough people are aware of, of it and that it's a very robust system. If we could question the defaults of copyright in ways that align more with what our culture looks like today, I, um, I think, for example, people existing and coexisting with content online might have to be either might have to be redefined as creativity or else we have to really reconsider whether the word creativity is this creative work, um, whether that is the thing to ask anymore, um, because creativity can look so many different ways in the online world. And some of those ways are going to be automated, uh, you know, and some of those ways are going to be very, very threatening to copyright holders um, who own a lot of content. So I think considering how creativity can, the, the definition of it can be expanded. And also, we can look really just quite frankly at what adds value for audiences today, and acknowledge the data and the massive amount of power that platforms get by having people on their sites. And if those types of things were somehow acknowledged a little bit more, that would be one way that content that just seems inaccessible to show right now could be sort of traded for the kind of value that users are offering on this platform. The value that doesn't always meet traditional definitions of value or creativity, but that is actually extraordinarily important in today's attention economy. So I don't know that that's a real clean prescription for a solution, but I think that I always advocate first just, you know, changing how we think, uh, changing how we think about what creativity is and acknowledging that it should be grounded in public behavior rather than in some ideals about what it looks like when somebody is creating. Definitely. Well, you put that beautifully. It's uh, Twitch is really about uh, public behavior and participatory culture and what's popular with, with, with the masses as, as Twitch chat is, you know, largely one mass interacting with one creator and one person. I'll really want to know what's been happening with some of these creators who have been banned and whether, you know, I'm curious to see what resolutions come out of this too. So I hope you'll keep me updated. I definitely will. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a nice conversation. This episode was written by myself, Gabe Stoltz, with a huge thank you to Dr. Diana Daly. Another big thanks to Prism for providing the music we used in this episode. Social Media and Ourselves is produced by the iVoices Media Lab at the University of Arizona, sponsored in part by the Center for University Education Scholarship. Thanks for listening.